0: Curiosity is key because if we're not curious, we don't even know it's trauma.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to Tales from the Journey. I am Stephanie Zamora and today we are here with Johnson Chong, who is the best-selling and award-winning author of Sage Sapien, a shamanic guide, a speaker, and a transformational coach who has just an amazing body of work and such a great story to share with us today. So, Johnson, thank you so much for being here.
0: Thanks so much, Stephanie, for having me on your show.
1: Yeah, I would love to start with you sharing just a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do.
0: That's always an interesting question. right? What do you do? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess I can start by you shared a lot of the broad strokes and the themes. And I suppose you can say that I work with various types of alternative modalities and tools to help people remember themselves. and. I have been working with a large community of people that have spanned across more corporate types of people to more freelancers, men, women, mainly women. And so actually for 2021, my focus is actually more on the LGBTQ plus community and really honing in on this concept of karma and working through the unconscious karma that we carry. A lot of that's unresolved emotional trauma, let's say, or it could be conditioned patterns of beliefs, limiting beliefs, fears, guilt, shame, all of these things that center around identity, especially for queer people. We tend to harbor, me being a gay person myself, we tend to hold onto things differently, um, since we are a minority in the world. And so really helping people break through that so they can come into a place of self-love, acceptance, more inner freedom and joy, no matter what goes on around us in the external world. So that's the bulk of what I do.
1: Yeah, so powerful. And I love what you talk about on your website about different types of people that inherently go against the grain. And I know that that was something that was true of you, what it sounds like, what I've read about your story when you were a child as well. And so I'd love to kind of go back to the beginning of your story, what your childhood was like, who you were, and and kind of start there.
0: Sure. So yeah, I was a very unruly child. I, (laughs) I I think there was always something innately within me that, questioned everything my parents said and did and everyone around me i think part of that was also my environment i grew up in new york city i was actually born and raised in new york and and then in brooklyn there's just so many cultures you have so many different sounds and accents and subcultures I lived in a very mixed neighborhood. Lots of Jamaicans. I would actually come home sometimes speaking in a Jamaican accent. Uh, I, I would be like, "Hey, mom!" Huh? Like I, I don't know what I did, but it was very because my parents, my mom, my dad had a little fish market, so he would leave me with the safarians in their fish restaurant, and I would just spend the whole day with them. <laughs> and that, that was my daycare. So, and then you also had lots of, you know, there was a big Latino community, and so. I think I was quite quiet as a kid and and language and communication was always fascinating to me because I would observe and notice that people were speaking different things and expressing things differently. And it wasn't until I realized that I was actually speaking Cantonese at home. When I went to preschool, I noticed that, wait, these other kids are speaking English. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> and that tends to happen a lot in New York and because a, a, a lot of these bicultural, multicultural communities are, are, are existing in their own little bubbles within New York City and in other large metropolitan areas, I think young children that come from immigrant families grow up with this sense of, oh, I'm, I'm different, I'm other right away. And so I was very aware of that at a young age and then throw in the sexual orientation later on and then realizing, oh, I'm even more other than <laughs> this other cultural thing. So yeah. not only did I realize, oh, I'm this Asian American kid. When I step into a room, I'm very aware of that. And then wait, now I'm I'm, I'm gay as well. I, I'm attracted to boys. And so so th- there has always been this Uh, shield that I put up whenever I would walk into a space because I I didn't want to be found out. And that led to some very unhealthy patterns growing up um, into young adulthood because there was this fear of intimacy because I was afraid of sharing, of also knowing that my parents are super traditional, knowing that they would not accept and that was this belief that I had in my head and they actually still don't accept. I've come out to them about a decade ago, but they still don't accept me to this day because of their values, where they come from, being refugees, experiencing lots of violence and trauma themselves, you know, they had a very violent past. So, uh, And then having to work through all that and understanding where where they've come from and how they've parented me because of their violent upbringing, I actually also experience a rather tumultuous, you know, physical, mental, emotional, verbally abusive uh, yeah. upbringing. So, I mean, it, it's just lots of things to unpack um, that I've had to do over the years. And I, mean, I think every queer person's journey is a little bit different. Some are more fortunate and they have a very accepting family and others are less so. And then, and then there's those who are experiencing even more otherness because they fall into some other subcategories. And and I think no matter, you know, I I don't think it's about comparing like whose journey has been more difficult, but it's really just recognizing that in our otherness and and what makes us very different or what makes us feel separate from the mainstream. That's where our gifts lie. And if we can really own that, which is very scary, it's like, oh, I'm really other. And so most of the time I do feel alone, but now I feel peaceful alone. I don't feel alone alone Um, because I do know that not a lot of people can identify with my experience and it's hard for them to imagine it because I'm in a very small minority of people. And I also have lived on three continents. So I now this enigma, I live in Australia, right? So people are like, ooh, who are you? You open your mouth, you sound American, <laughs> but you look Asian. What? And people have no idea where I'm from. They just go, Are you Canadian? Like what? <laughs> oh, you're gay? Oh, tell me more about that. Right. So everywhere, <laughs> everywhere I go, people are trying to label me and put me into a box. Right. And, and and that's okay. I don't, I, I'm not offended by it anymore. I used to be. Um, And and so this is is kind of, yeah, I can ramble on and on about identity.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What was it like for you? Because you mentioned that, especially when you were younger and in school, like you had put up walls and barriers to keep yourself safe. What was it like for you to begin forming relationships that felt deeply connected and safe and genuine? And at what point in your life were you able to do that?
0: I think it started when I was 14 and my friend, Joanna, I mean, it wasn't in the most conscious of ways, but it was my first attempt at trust. And because me and my siblings, I have an older brother and younger sister. The way that our parents raised us was very much in this doggy dog mentality. And it was all about rewarding the one who did the best. You know, it was very competitive. And so it wasn't the healthiest way of parenting. It's just what my parents knew. And it, what that l- led me to do was to always, you know, try and outshine everyone else in school. So I actually got straight A's. I didn't actually have to work very hard. I, I never wanted to be the last one ever in anything I did, whether it was academics or in sports. I, I I wanted to excel at everything. I was this overachiever because of the expectations from my parents. And and in that I didn't want to show people any of my my weaknesses. And so my friend at the time, Joanna, who, you know, at fourteen, we we started taking the school bus together and the train and we realized we lived down the block and and the one thing that we connected on was bitching at everything. So that was how I started developing trust it was like this little bitchy teenager who was moaning at the world. And that's where I found common ground. And of course, later on as I evolved, 18, 19, 20, and then actually by 1920, that's when I started experiencing yoga and the spiritual teachings of yoga. And then by 2021, 22, it just kind of was this avalanche of meeting different saints and teachers and masters and various workshop leaders and different facilitators in New York, because New York's such it's a massive hub for all of this kind of work. And that's when I started to realize that, oh wow. Me trusting is not the same as commiserating, and I realized that a lot of people were—they found a bond—and and you know, as children or as young adults, that we tend to commiserate and moan about what's wrong, versus, oh wow, let me connect authentically and share with you exactly how I feel, um, and and that that's probably more risky because you may lose that relationship if the person like totally doesn't get it or it might strengthen your relationship. Um, and and it, I, I think it took a while for me to understand what intimacy with myself is, was, um, and how to develop that further. And I think a lot of it required separating from people and separating from unhealthy relationships. And I I could see that over the years and I actually, I don't talk to that high school friend anymore, not because there's anything wrong. We've just grown apart, you know, um, and, and our different, you know, we have different interests and hobbies. And I started to notice that my, the friends and the people that I keep around share a, a more common understanding that we are having this human experience as energetic beings, spiritual beings, and that there are certain things that just don't have a grip or uh, whole importance even. And so it it doesn't make sense for me to keep people around that still put certain weight on, you know, dramas and, because then it brings me back into old patterns and it's not a better than a worse than it's just this, it's just this evolution uh, of who we are as people. Um, So I would say that, you know, I've had a very, tricky relationship with trust with people and intimacy and changing relationships. And I only really have, you know, a few friends that I can call and, and and they would have an understanding of where I am energetically um, right now where I am. So, yeah. And I think that's different for everyone. Yeah.
1: Definitely. What was your process of, like you mentioned the sense of being other and having, a family system, a family home that was very like, you should look and behave these ways. Like there was a lot of expectation around who you should be when you were younger. What was it like for you? Did you conform in any ways? Did you shut down any aspects of yourself and for how long, if you did?
0: Ooh, yes. I think that, well, in Chinese culture, There's the concept of filial piety, which is very much paying respect to your elders, and Osho, who is one of my teacher's teachers, he talks a lot about respect as not something that is automatically just there, it's something to be earned what it, 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 and it's not hierarchical it's not about oh that's your elder, you must respect them and he actually flips the whole thing on its head and says what about respecting the children and, and and letting them have a voice in what it is that they want what are their desires Right? and the thing is in Chinese culture it's very I don't think this was always the case but I think something happened 150 years ago that shifted You know, the energy of of, of how modern Chinese culture is. And a lot of it comes from imperialism and having to then warp the old Confucian values and make them a little bit, it's like mutant Confucian values. Because if you look at the Taoist and Confucian ways, a lot of these precepts of paying respect to father as the sky and mother as the earth. These are very shamanic principles that you see in indigenous cultures, except there's not such a attachment to what that means. Whereas when you say these phrases, well, well, my parents would say it like, you must honor me as the earth. I mean, that's very poetic in Chinese, you know, and they'll scream at me yelling, saying these poetic <laughs> things. Um, and you must respect father as the sky, you know? And it's like, oh my God, you know? And so I would hear all these poetic sayings in Chinese growing up and it would n- I would never understand because it, it was such a dogmatic understanding of, of these principles of respect. And I, I think I picked up at a young age that, their expression of these phrases was colored by some sort of pain and hurt in them that I didn't quite understand and it was only when they would melt down because they were totally overwhelmed and they would never express their feelings that they would then start talking about their past with communism and you know all the things they experienced with you know my dad's mom getting murdered and and you know, family turning on each other just to stay safe and, yeah. and then having to flee and run from people because they would get killed and then having to swim to Hong Kong and, and like all these crazy, crazy things. Um, and and I, I remember going, oh, wow, okay, I've never, I've never experienced that. Okay, I can sort of start to see where they're coming from, why. You know, hurt people, hurt people. I I, I got right. that at a young age. That they're hurt and they're still hurt and they're hurting me not knowingly. And I and and so part of me knew this so I could empathize with them, but also that was like the adult soul version of me that kind of saw things from this very zoomed out perspective because I I just had these insights as a kid. However, the child human version of me was like, "Oh no, but I want mommy to hold me in the way that I okay. see other mothers holding children." My mom never really, you know, my parents weren't physically affectionate. I want my father to, you know, be more present. You know, he was very much checked out most of the time and just providing, being the breadwinner and not really emotionally involved with us growing up. So I wanted my parents to be a certain way, um, but they weren't. So I had to hide those parts of me that wanted. And I think because I knew that if I showed, actually, when I did show desire that I wanted something, I would get either smacked or shut down or, you know, so it was a big no. And even though the other part of the, my, the higher, more evolved consciousness aspect of me that was picking up on all these things as a kid knew that this wasn't the truth, it, it, I still let that, the, the, the victimized part of me take over and that pretty much governed, you know, my yeah. life as a young adult. So I, I think it wasn't until my early 20s that I started to unravel that, you know, big ball of repressed emotions. So it, it yeah. took a while. You know, and and I think I'm quite fortunate because some people don't do that work until they're like in their forties or fifties. And and I was really fortunate to have role models and guides and mentors at a younger age to point me in the right direction.
1: Yeah, that's huge. We talk a lot about the role of mentors in the work that I do and and on the show, both our external mentors, whether that's coaches or therapists, or just wise people that we come across or books or podcasts, but also our own internal mentors. And that can be our spiritual relationship or religious relationship, or even just our intuition. And what kind of mentors did you have in role models and how did you find them?
0: Well, I, it's okay, this is part of the whole inner rebel thing that I experienced as a kid. Mm-hmm even though I wanted mom and dad's approval, there was this part of me is like, no, I'm going to do what I want. So I left for acting school, which was a big no-no in my family. So I went to go study theater because it was the only place that I felt like misfits belonged. I mean, you, you look at shows like Glee and all these types of shows where, where the theater kids are a little bit you know mismatched right and so i, I felt fo- I found comfort in that and so I, I went off to theater conservatory for four years, and it was actually there that I was exposed to yoga and to various mind body somatic practices and it was more mental physical psychological, and that was an accidental discovery into spirituality because yeah. the purpose of doing yoga in that context in acting training and in doing mind body somatic work was more about. You as a person learning more about your physical tension, your physical habits, how to let go of it, so you can be a more efficient, more truthful actor on stage for performance for telling the story. But something happened in that process. I realized, oh my goodness, I'm not separate of this character. You hear this a lot with not as nuanced actors. You hear, you know, you, you, I, I hear this sometimes, and they and they say things like, um, "Oh, I, I'm I'm playing." I'm playing a part that's not myself. So I'm I, I'm spending, you know, my career being someone I'm not. And that wasn't the case for me as as an actor. Actually, and actually, our teachers taught us that you're just accentuating a part of you and highlighting that more. So every character you play, even if it's a villain, you know, I've played, you know, very awful characters. I I played, you know, a Japanese rapist who during World War II. Uh, during their occupation of korea i've i've played you know gangsters and you know people that did really awful things but the what you realize in playing dark dark characters is that the only reason you can play those characters is that there's a seed of that within yourself yeah and you're just choosing consciously in your normal you know me johnson my normal day day to not not let that come out but you also learn to empathize with it because when you're playing a villain. You don't think you're bad. Your intentions may sound the same as, you know, Joe Schmoe down the block who has a similar intention. I just want to be, I want approval, you know, but Joe down the block may be looking for approval by doing nice things and buying flowers for, you know, his mom on Mother's Day. And then this other person is looking for, you know, the villain is looking for approval because they want the world to recognize them because they haven't dealt with, their inner wounds or whatever it is, everyone expresses their need for approval differently. So you notice that the intentions for every human being is very much the same. Everyone just wants to be loved and to love. It, they just have different ways of doing it. And when you start to see that, there's something in you that shifts. There's a spiritual connection that you just cannot help but develop. And and I, I think really good actors realize that. I mean, the theater was always, it, it was always grounded in its portrayal of the divine, you see this in ancient Greek theater. It was a reflection of of the Greek gods, and they're portraying the stories. That that's what theater was, and 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 in that, I started. So my first teachers were were my theater teachers, and then I, I was curious. I was like, "What is this yoga business? I want to go deeper into <laughs> the spiritual aspect." So I started going to a studio where they they taught a little bit more of the philosophy of yoga and then that took me into meditation and then that brought me into energy work where i studied to be a master reiki practitioner and then doing shamanic work as well and and then body work i I was really into uncovering what the body was holding on to because I had the craziest experiences with my body shaking, yeah. not even controlling, and and going into these releases, um, crying hysterically, into maniacally laughing from one moment to the next. Like, yeah. what is my body doing? And I'm not even doing this. It it is just having its release. So I was always very curious as to, you know, how the body was storing memory and experiences. So I, I studied body work and, and 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 meeting different mentors and spiritual teachers along the way to help facilitate that and so I've been very blessed in that I've met just the right person to take me there yeah and they've always pushed me into my blind spots and forced me to look at things that I never considered before and it's just changed everything in in how I look at the world
1: yeah oh my goodness it's so when I started working to heal my trauma, it was fascinating to me how the body and the mind work. And I kept, at first, I really believed like mind over matter, right? Like if I just like decide and think this way, like I can just do these things and heal myself. And, and then my body would start shaking or things would start happening or I would have panic attacks. And it was just like, oh, I'm not, <laughs> this is not a mind over matter thing. Like it's, it's, in my body and it has to process out.
0: Mm. And I think it's also the permission piece too, to allow ourselves to see what's happening that's already there and waking up to the fact that that energy that is moving through can either be felt or numbed out. And I remember I was laying there on the floor in a fetal position, and it was a class called Feldenkrais. And you can look up Feldenkrais if, if you're not familiar with his work, but his work was very much on mind-body somatics. And he, he was a scientist engineer who injured himself and he didn't want to go the surgical route. So he Did a lot of inquiry based work into his body and figuring out these little fidgety movements back and forth, back and forth, and just watching, let's say, you know, like the rotation of your head. You know, and and doing that for three to five, 10 minutes. Yeah. But then with very specific awareness points of how it's moving. Is it moving from the different senses? Is it moving from your eyes? Are you turning your head from your, 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 your sense of hearing? Is it from your taste? Right. And and all these different types of exercises. And I remember I was laying on my side, and my teacher was asking me to undulate my pelvis. And she was asking specifically to see if we can separate the movement of the sacrum and the tail and the pelvic bowl from the thigh bones, from how the femur is attached into the socket. So those of you who are anatomically inclined, you probably understand. For those of you who are not, you may not have thought of that before and it might make you question and then look at <laughs> Google and, and look at what that looks like. But, but I had never at that point in time, you know, at 19 years old, considered that my pelvis and my legs were actually a ball and socket connected together and by moving my tail and letting it fluctuate like that, and to feel the difference, and then but also feel them working together as a team—that separation and connection—it sent me somewhere else. I, I started. I, I went into. The, I felt this warm current of electricity move up my spine, and then I started of course, sobbing hysterically, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> my tailbone. And, and I didn't understand at the time, but that was the beginning of what people call a kundalini awakening because there was yeah. this, it was a current of energy that I could feel. And all it is, is an awakening to something that's already happening. And, and, and so permission and allowing ourselves to see that um, in a movement context or in a yoga class even can be really powerful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. During all of this exploration, did was it just curiosity based or were you looking to heal some of your trauma and some of your deeper stuff?
0: I think at first it was about curiosity because in acting school the first thing they teach you is the what if principle. So what if you were Adolf Hitler? and you had to play him as a, as a character. What if you were a parent who lost all your children during the plague in the Middle Ages? I don't know, whatever it is, right? So it, 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 you have to be curious as an actor. What if I were this person who seems so different from me? And in wanting to understand that, you realize actually there are certain parts of you that you can find within that character. And so the curiosity piece led me to explore my humanity in a different way, to empathize with the more shadowy, you know, those parts of ourselves that we judge like, oh, I would never do that. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I would never, you know, okay, you, you, you say you would never, but you weren't, you know, like, I'm trying to think now, like, uh, once in school, I had to play this, um, you know, the, the, the myth of Jason and Medea? In in ancient Greek mythology. So there was this contemporary Irish version written by Marina Carr. It was called The Bog of Cats. And I I don't know why I got cast as like this Irishman on this like I thought I would be cast in the ethnic show, you know, but I got cast in like the Irish show. I was like, I had to put in this Irish accent. I was like, all right, whatever, colorblind casting. Here we go. So here I am, this Irishman. Um, and he there's this, there's this whole like um rivalry between um the character who's the Jason equivalent and uh, the Medea equivalent. I can't remember their, the character's names anymore. And they're fighting over like custody of the child. And and the, the wife, you know, does all these awful things. She even burns down the caravan and like kills her kid, you know? And, and, and you, we, we say that we would never do those things, but we don't necessarily know the kind of history, the kind of karma that has led that character to do such a heinous act. But, in the moment, th- those were her decisions. They were not the best decisions, but it comes from a whole history of unresolved issues. And I think that is what you learn as as a as a performer. You learn to empathize with these really dark parts of yourselves, and you don't judge it because that's not your job. Your job is not to judge it. it your, your job is to bring it out so other people can see it and reflect on it and go, "Oh, right." What was the question again? I can't remember.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of answered it. So it was it began curiosity-based. So I guess the, the question would now be: at what point did you start to realize like you're doing your own healing and growth
0: work? I think it was when my second year acting teacher sent me to the therapist. <laughs> He's like, you need to go to therapy. I was like, what? How dare you? Right? What do you mean? I have to go to therapy? So what happened was, I was in, I was failing basically. We we were all put on probation. We were in this again competitive environment where we it, there was a cut system. We entered with twenty two people into a very competitive uh, conservatory environment. And we graduated with fifteen. You're all put on probation for the first year. By the second year, I was still on probation. If you're on probation for two more semesters, you're out. And I go, oh my god, I can't, I can't get, you know, that would be a no-no. Um, so here I was, I was overachieving again. I'm like, I'm going to prove to everyone that I'm not <laughs> going to fail. So instead of presenting uh, one final scene for the end of the semester, we're doing checkoff, and Anton checkoff. Wrote very bleak plays that reflected, you know, Russian, like just the Russian, like life, you know, out in like this, just harsh, harsh, uh, bleak, uh, melancholic characters who were alcoholic, who had gambling issues. Like he wrote, wrote like really dark um, things um, in, in seemingly very ordinary. Um, life and that was what was really disturbing about a lot of his work because it was quite ordinary. And so I decided to do three scenes with three different scene partners back to back um, to to show that I was good enough, right? And and what happened was because I did three back to back scenes, I started to and I was playing this character Ivanov, who ends, you know, the climax of the play is that he feels super despicable as an awful human being because he hurts his wife so badly. He cheats on his wife with this like young maid. He has gambled all his money away. He's married his wife who's Jewish for her dowry, and he himself has no money and he's borrowed all this money that he can't return. And so here he is having this affair. He hates his wife and resents her because because she had to convert to be Christian. Her family disowned her, and so he now has no dowry. He has no money. He's broke, and he resents the wife. They're not in love, and she's sick. You know, she has like this. You know, she has this like uh, d- disease that is basically terminal, and so he he goes into this this space where he basically insults her and says you're gonna die, and starts calling her all these like awful racial slurs. And then he realized, oh, my God, what am I doing? I'm a terrible human being. And at the end, he has this meltdown. He goes, oh, my God, I'm a terrible human being. Being, Will you forgive me? I'm despicable. I'm awful. I'm awful. I'm awful. And I literally felt that because of what I was going through at the time. I felt Johnson's an awful person for hiding from you know I, I was still also hiding i was trying to be like straight and like be like this straight actor Yeah, you, know? <laughs> you know i'm hiding from people um i'm, I'm hiding from you know I'm, I'm not telling people about you know my family i'm still like repressing a lot of my my emotions i feel terrible because i feel that you know my acting professor's think I'm a terrible actor um, and and so I actually feel like a despicable human being and so then the two merged and I literally didn't have a meltdown as the character, I had a meltdown as Nick. Johnson and I went into this like state where I was curled up into a ball in, in the acting studio shaking and convulsing because I I got the character confused with me and it it became a bit psychologically damaging. To the point where I couldn't leave that emotional state and and the, and everyone realized in class that something was wrong here. Yeah, it was no yeah. like there was not the separation, the safe separation of actor and and character. and And my teacher literally gave like the whole class a talk about acting is not, you know, a psychological therapeutic release. If you have issues, you need to go see a counselor or a therapist. <laughs> and I felt even worse. I was like, oh right. my God. So then he sent me off to the therapist and I did. And I actually didn't find it helpful because, um, in therapy, they kept me diving into the past and analyzing And I'm already a very analytical person. So they kept me analyzing why I think the way I think, what I do, what actions I I, I choose, um, and and relating it to a particular scenario from the past. So in that context, it was always going to be everything I do now is a result of something that happened to me in the past. And that, for me, perpetuated this victim mentality, like I couldn't change it. So in therapy, I would just literally cry myself. Like I, I would leave feeling worse than I did because I was like, oh my God, I have more issues. And it was like, I keep doing this because of that. So I kept equating something to the past. And it, it was more in like meditative work, the shamanic work where there was more of this empowering quality of, wait a minute. Yes, that's where it comes from. And now what? Let's take the, the, the symbol of, uh, of, Let's say like, like, for example, for me, it, it, one of the things was like a neck thing. My neck was really forward. And I would hold my posture out like this. And, and I would like, I didn't realize at the time, but I'd be walking out like a duck. Like my head was like <laughs> out here. And then my body was like way behind me. And my back was like, it was all yeah. types of weird, my posture. And so, so that's my physical symbolically, metaphorically, what that was representing was my fear of coming into my heart space. So if I pulled my head back and stacked my head up over my heart, you know, you would see that the head and the heart is bridged by the neck and the throat. And in order to do that, I needed a sense of safety and trust that everything was okay. And I, I, I could not allow everything to be okay if, if I kept seeing the world as this dog-eat-dog scenario. So I needed to learn how to trust, to be okay with people, And I had to do a lot of body work, actually, for that. I I had my teacher, like one of my female teachers, she would hold and cradle my head and neck. It was on our private one-on-one table sessions. And she would literally just hold it very lightly, do the lightest little traction. And she had the sweetest little angelic voice. And she would say, imagine your neck being long and free. And, And she would say some other things, softening the jaw. It was so simple. But in that moment, I felt a mother's love. That was me projecting, of course, that I never got from my mom. My mom's like the opposite. She's like a thunderbolt hurling through the sky. She's crazy (laughs) fierce, you know? And this woman is like the opposite. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is what I've always wanted as a child. And in that release, I felt safe. And I had to practice that over and over and over again. Um, And in, in, in allowing the safety to be there, for a longer period of time, and then being curious as to, oh, how can I keep this more? Oh, wait a minute. I need to change the way I'm looking at the world. Oh, okay. That, so yeah, curiosity is key because if we're not curious, yeah. we don't even know it's trauma. You know, We're just like, oh, that's just how the world is. Yeah. I just lash out and react at people violently all the time. That's how the world is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, curiosity, I think, is, is super important.
1: Yeah, that's so powerful. So how did you go from, like, how did you step into who you are now, both in terms of coming out, but also realizing that theater wasn't the path for you and then beginning to do the work that you do today?
0: Well... So I realized that on stage, and I had this on-off relationship with theater. I had this dream of like going to LA and auditioning for sci-fi shows and just being this alien on TV because <laughs> I, I loved I loved Star Trek and I loved Aliens and sci-fi, and there was this fantastical escape element that always intrigued me because I always felt alien and yeah. other in, as a child. So I always resonated with the aliens. On TV shows, I was like, "Oh, that's me. I'm the alien. (laughs) (laughs) Alien, me." So, so then when I realized that, wait a minute, that's just me being, you know, an escape artist here. That's that's probably not so healthy. um, In diving into more of the meditative work, because I realized that wherever I went, I was there, and I had, you know, it's making lots of mistakes. I I would run away from New York, and I, I I would take all the money I saved up, waiting tables. Uh, cause you know, that's, that's the thing you do in New York. You wait tables, you act, you wait tables, you act. Uh, and so I took all my tip money and I would just fly away to, just to escape and have a different experience, but I couldn't run from my thoughts and from my head. And, and I think it was doing that a few times and making the same mistake that I realized, okay, I need to do something about this. And then I realized it, that acting was not actually grounding for me because as an actor, you're you're constantly put into situations where you have to deal with rejection. You audition for a hundred gigs you probably get two right and then you also there's an integrity question you know how many times do i want to do I want to audition for the the geeky um, you know engineer on some TV show or or whatever it is you know some, some where you get uh, typecasted right. and and so you have to navigate what your heart desires and also to eat, like, okay, I have to do these things because uh, otherwise I won't get seen and I shouldn't say no. And so this integrity piece comes into play and I realize, wait a minute, why am I doing this? A- am I doing this to therapize myself or am I doing this because I genuinely love the art of storytelling? And actually what I really loved was stage work where I felt this meditative flow of living life larger than it actually was on a day to day. That's what it felt like on stage for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours of doing a show, you're so focused on the other actor, on the story, on delivering something that's honest and truthful. It becomes this meditative, energetic flow. That's how it felt for me anyway. Then I realized, wait a minute, I can do this in meditation. I can sit and, and when I started to realize, oh, it's the same feeling, um, that's when I started to slowly make the shift into really going more on the healing path and and then i had a big uh, ayahuasca plant medicine experience when i was 26 and that changed everything for me because i realized i went in with the intention asking ayahuasca the 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 me- the medicine and i communicated with her and i said where am I meant to go? Can you please show me? Am I meant to continue forcing down this path of actor, which felt like yeah. an uphill battle everywhere I went? It was like so hard. Or do I go down um, something else? Do I go down more of this yoga healing path, which I already was on, but I wasn't fully embracing and I was split between two worlds. And she opened the door and just showed me this other healing path and it was frightening and exciting all at the same time. I saw spirits everywhere i saw shadowy things i saw really bright angelic deities i saw all the stuff that was hovering around everyone in that room i I saw it very clearly and then i was like no I i don't want to see this and i tried to close my eyes but it was still there i was like okay so this is my answer i didn't realize it at the time but in retrospect i was like oh i'm being shown that i can tap into the unseen realities and so go there And so it took me another year to like accept that. And I was like, oh no, God, I just want to shut that door again. And and then I went back the acting route, right? So I I had a a bit of a push and a pull with it. And then eventually I embraced it. And then I came back to acting again, like about five years ago. And, And I was, you know, in Singapore, I lived in Singapore for six years. And I did... Shakespeare in the park for thirty thousand people in the park for a month, and we had like two thousand people every night in this massive park, and it was Merchant of Venice beautiful performance, but I still felt a little hollow at the end of the performance I, I thought, why am I not why am I not in love with this? And I realized that i, I okay I, I've actually grown out of this that That my journey into acting was really just for me to learn more about myself, to send me off into this healing journey. So now I just tell stories through helping people with their own stories. And that feels more aligned with where I am now.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And so how did you begin to do the speaking and the writing and the coaching?
0: that's, That's an interesting thing too. I think everything happens by, I don't want to say accident, but it's... When one door closes, you decide to close, like, okay, that's the end of that chapter of my life, of, and, and you commit your your energy to a new direction. I, I wasn't sure where I was going. I was like, okay, I'm teaching. So here I am teaching, and then teaching led to, you know, I opened up a studio in, in Singapore, you know, and and so I had this boutique studio. We did yoga and Pilates and meditation. We did workshops. We did retreats all over Southeast Asia. But then that didn't feel quite right, and then there, there was, you know, in meditation, sometimes you get, you get intuition, you get visions, and you get shown things, and so it was like, oh, okay, now I'm in Australia, right? So <laughs> I was like, okay, why am I here? And 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 I've learned that whenever I get shown something or 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 experience something, sometimes it comes through feeling in the body, and it's just this this download of feelings. It's like a like a picture book, like a cartoon book of do 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 do. Th- this is where you must go. You don't know exactly where you're gonna go, but if you don't listen, it, it's gonna it's gonna feel difficult. And I've learned that, I, and I, I've gone, I, I've I've heard and I've listened, and then I've shut the door. I'm like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want that. <laughs> and my ego goes, no, no, I don't think so. You must be wrong up there, right? But but I I I think a lot of the the writing and the it just it, it was, again, it was intuitive. It was. It was inspired from a place that is other than my own. And and like, I never, well, a psychic once did say, oh, you're going to write a book. This was like in my 20s. I'm like, what are you talking about? No, 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 this is crazy. So, But then in the moment, I was like, oh, wait, something's coming. Something's coming in and and telling me to to go into it. Because I was actually, I started writing, um, I was writing something more for a training manual, for meditation teacher training. And then it turned into more storytelling because I felt the only way I could authentically share about altered and expanded states of consciousness was through personal um, experiences. Yeah. And then it just started to morph into this. And of course, with my theater background, it was just the way that I was writing. And I I, I never, you know, ever considered writing a book because, but I did journal, you know, I, I, and so that kind of just took on its own life. And and I think the speaking naturally was me bridging this aspect of me that has always wanted to perform but instead of performing as a character I'm just talking about yeah. myself and my experiences and and hopefully that might reflect something that is like a hidden seat of potential in someone else and so it was kind of bridging the theater world and the spiritual world together and that's yeah. where that happened. And, and so now it's kind of come full circle, which I didn't understand at the time, but it's like, oh, right. That's why I went <laughs> to theater school. Right. I got, I got yep. it. Now it makes sense. We don't know. We don't really know why we're doing things sometimes when we're in it. And it's only like, you know, 10, 15 years, we look back and we're like, oh. Right.
1: <laughs> exactly. To kind of wrap up the whole conversation, what is one thing that you wish you would have known back when you were a child or a teenager?
0: I think, I don't know. I think that's a hard question because on one hand, I think I learned a lot through pain. And then on, an, on, an, on another hand, if I were to go back and tell young Johnson something, it would be to, to trust with more ease that the universe has got your back, that pain is temporary right? The sensation of getting your heart broken by your parents or from a future lover or whoever it might be from not getting the thing you want. Trust that it's going to be okay, that, you, that the world is actually a safe place. And I think that piece of, of safety, if we, all, if we all just realize that it's not the way that we make it out to be, because it's, it's what we're projecting out into the world. Then, then we allow ourselves to do more. We, we could, because if we're not safe, we can't create because we're, we're in this fight-flight mode. Right? It's that first stage of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We, we got to get food, water, shelter. We need love and affection and all these things to make sure that we're, we're okay. If we're not okay, I mean, we're just going to keep fighting for those things. So that would be the one thing I think I would tell my young self.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. We're going to link to everything of yours in the show notes. But before we sign off, tell everyone where they can find you and how they can learn from you and work with you.
0: Sure. I am on the socials. So on Instagram, it's my name, Johnson Chong, uh, J-O-H-N-S-O-N-C-H-O-N-G underscore Sage Sapien. S a uh, g e s a p i e n, which is the the name of my book is called Sage Sapient from Karma to Dharma, and it's available on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, um, ebook or or paperback, and Facebook it's the same as well. And I'm uh, my website's just my name actually, JohnsonChong dot com. And next year is super exciting because I'm. Launching a LGBTQ plus spiritual program for eight weeks, and taking this intensive that I have been running with—I don't want to say normal folk, because in that, you know—but but like uh, like the non LGBTQ plus <laughs> folks that I had been running um, this program with, but making it more queer specific, um, and transforming our karma into dharma, and so that's the kind of stuff I'm doing. Yeah. But Yeah.
1: Awesome. Johnson, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your journey and your wisdom. I so appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me on the show, Stephanie.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today and for being a part of this powerful community of purpose-driven individuals. We have a ton of free resources for you at www.talesfromthejourney.tv slash free, including access to an eight-week sampler of our renowned journey mapping program. That gives you instant access to impactful training lessons, life-changing exercises, and our signature AccuSesh processes that you can implement immediately. We'd love your help in getting the message out and growing our community. So please take a moment to share this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a review on iTunes. I'll catch you in the next episode.